Hi there. Welcome to Nature Spirit, exploring the spirituality of a living world. I'm your host, Priscilla Stuckey. There's a poison seeping through America's veins. It's a poison that Germany knew in the 1930s and that other countries are struggling with now as well. It's the poison of authoritarianism. Florida has passed laws to limit teaching about certain topics in schools. Racism, African-American history, gender identity, sexual orientation. The laws are worded vaguely, which gives them extra power just because they're so ambiguous. It means they can scare people into obeying in advance to stay out of trouble. So we're watching schools drop courses and school libraries empty their shelves of possibly offending books so that teachers and administrators can avoid being charged with crimes. It's a travesty, and it's horrifying. This is a massive attack on free speech and on education, and other red states are trying to copy it. It's an organized attack on differences, as if differences among people are destructive instead of healthy and invigorating. And that's how you know the laws are fueled by authoritarianism. They try to preserve an old order of power, where white people get to mold society into their own image. These laws are profoundly anti-democratic. So where does this authoritarianism come from? We've talked before about how this country is shifting demographically toward more diversity, toward becoming a multi-hued, multicultural people. And in response, many white people are terrified, and they're reacting with repression, with authoritarianism. Karen Stenner is a political psychologist who analyzes this current wave of authoritarianism. She finds that one trait ties authoritarians together. They are uncomfortable with diversity. Authoritarians, at bottom, want everyone to be alike. This is a little different from being conservative, she says. Conservatives are uncomfortable with change, while authoritarians are uncomfortable with difference. It may sound subtle, but it leads to big differences in policies. Authoritarians emphasize obedience, she says. They try to avoid complexity. They want everyone to fit the same mold, so they pass laws to create conformity and punish diversity. They may call for expelling from the community people who are different in any way, and they are willing to use all the power of the state to enforce sameness. Authoritarians will discriminate against minorities and will try to regulate people's behavior. So authoritarianism is fundamentally at odds with democracy in a way that conservatism, being uncomfortable with change, is not. We might think that authoritarianism is a recent development, something that reared its ugly head in Germany a hundred years ago and is cropping up again today. But if you take a longer look at Western history, you can see that, in fact, it reaches way back. And in a minute, we're going to look at just how far. But for now, I want to say that trying to enforce sameness in the long run doesn't work. It doesn't work because it fundamentally doesn't support life. 
for if there is one direction that nature is headed, it is always toward diversity, endless diversity. Nature multiplies differences, creates dissimilarity at every turn. Evolution is all about compounding differences, making out of one, many. This is the heart of the great force of life, a boundless creativity bringing forth variations without measure, or in Darwin's lovely words, endless forms most beautiful. So no two flowers are alike, not even two petals in the same flower. No two people can ever be the same, not even identical twins. Every cell in a body, every ant in a colony, every bee in a hive, every snowflake is distinct, with its own appearance, its own journey. Nature is always bringing forth something new, reaching toward multiplicity, experimenting with unpredictable results. Yet within all this diversity, there is one way in which we are all alike, inescapably alike, and we're exactly the same in this one way only. We all die. Philosopher Bell Hooks wrote movingly of death as a deep equality, a gift of democracy bestowed by the earth. Ultimately, she said, nature rules. That is the great democratic gift the earth offers us, that sweet death to which we all inevitably go, into that final communion. She added, no race, no class, no gender, nothing can keep any of us from dying into that death where we are made one. It is indeed a beautiful sameness, an earthly evidence that none are or ever can be better than others, and that when one people do try to set themselves over others, it is based on a lie. The earth shows that truth. And death is the only kind of sameness possible in an evolving, ever-shifting world. This should be a big hint to us that trying to force people into a mold is profoundly at odds with the flourishing of life. It runs against nature's promiscuous search for something new. The logic of sameness kills the spirit. Bullying people with authoritarianism creates only trauma and misery, not vitality and life. Karen Stenner, the political psychologist, found that across Western countries, including the UK, the European Union, and the United States, about a third of white people have authoritarian tendencies. It sounds discouraging, a third of white people. That's a huge block of people, enough to mount serious challenges to democracy. But when I read it, I was surprised for the opposite reason. Only a third. It's a lot smaller number than I expected. It means that two-thirds of white people in Western societies are not comfortable with authoritarianism. This is good news, because I've lived long enough to watch this support for diversity grow. But in the present moment, we're experiencing a backlash, and Stenner tries to figure out why. She concludes that when a society is made up of unrelated people not knit together by kinship or ethnic ties— and this means all pluralistic modern societies, people will still try to find a shared identity, a sense of us. 
and especially in times of stress, they may try to find it by falling back on an idea of sameness that is not there, by forcing sameness onto others. Stenner says this is a perennial problem, and it is, but maybe not for the reason she thinks. Stenner is a psychologist, and she finds the answer in psychology, that about a third of white people will always have the temperament to want sameness. I find the answer instead in history. The logic of sameness is strong today because it's been used for so long in Western societies to help knit people into a shared identity. Authoritarianism is there like a reflex, well-developed and waiting to be relied on in times of stress. Just how long exactly has it been used? Two thousand years, at least. The pattern goes all the way back to the Roman Empire. So let's look for a minute at the Roman Empire. We tend to think of it as a pretty cosmopolitan place, and in many ways it was. It had to be, stretching 2,500 miles end to end. Romans, as they conquered each new territory, absorbed all the languages and dialects and peoples of that region. They set up a Roman-style government, but for the most part, they left the local cultures alone. With one exception, and it was a big one. Rome had a harder time dealing with foreign religions, because Romans cared about religion a lot. They were deeply religious. It's a thing we've forgotten about the Romans, that they were so pious. They were utterly devoted to their religion, so devoted that they boasted about just how good they were at honoring the gods. So here's Cicero, a philosopher and statesman, writing around the year 50 BCE, during the century when the Roman Republic was shifting toward an empire. Cicero said, If we care to compare our national characteristics with those of foreign peoples, we shall find that, while in all other respects we are only the equals or even the inferiors of others, yet in the sense of religion, that is, in reverence for the gods, we are far superior. It was a boast that Romans repeated through the following centuries. They had the gods on their side— and the gods were on their side because the Romans were so devoted to them. So how did the Romans show their devotion? Mainly through public rituals and ceremonies. The Roman religion centered on animal sacrifices in temples, as religions throughout the Mediterranean and Near East did at that time. Every Roman city had its temples devoted to certain gods, and every temple sacrificed animals on their front plaza as gifts to the gods, and from the animals the priests created public festivals and free public feasts to honor the gods, and everyone joined in. These were the highlights of the calendar every month, days off, if you will, at a time when there was no weekly schedule. Romans followed another kind of public ritual, too, living out the traditional values handed down from the ancestors, which meant following the rules of Roman social hierarchy. Wives were to be subject to their husbands, children obeyed their parents, and slaves obeyed their masters. Stepping out of line dishonored the gods. So to stay in the gods' good graces, everyone performed their public duties, 
It was a religion of doing, not believing, honoring the gods so people could prosper. We call this Roman religion pagan, but that's really misleading. It conjures up images of people revering nature and going out to the forest to hold ceremonies under trees. In fact, Roman religion had almost nothing to do with the environment. Romans didn't care at all about the natural world beyond how they could exploit it. Romans mowed down the forests to build their cities and roads, and they killed all the wild animals for games and for sport, because they believed that all of nature exists to serve human beings. Yes, this idea too goes back more than 2,000 years. For example, Cicero in 50 BCE, right after boasting about superior Roman religion, boasted that humans are superior to all the beasts. He said that all the gifts of the earth exist for human beings, not for the so-called lower animals, and if the animals manage to get some of the gifts, it's only because they have stolen them from the rightful owners, meaning us. Everything in this world of use to us, he said grandly, was made designedly for us. But there was one way in which Roman religion echoed nature. The Roman gods and goddesses represented the forces behind nature. The fearsome sky and the wind and the wild, wild sea, these were the real masters of the universe. These were the powers that had designed the world and given it to us to use. And these were the powers that decided human destiny. Roman religion may have had nothing to do with serving visible nature, but it had everything to do with serving the invisible forces behind nature, keeping them happy by keeping the traditions handed down from the ages. But because Romans invested so much of their identity in religion, it meant that religion acquired some of that logic of sameness. Romans expected that everyone would offer sacrifices and honor the Roman gods in the same ways. Of course, being cosmopolitan, when they absorbed a foreign culture into the empire, they absorbed those foreign gods as well. When they conquered Greece, for example, they scooped up the Greek gods and goddesses and turned them into the principal deities of the Roman pantheon. Time and again, they simply folded foreign deities into the Roman religion. But beware any people who refused to be folded in, who kept their gods outside the Roman pantheon, or who refused the Roman sacrifices. Such people were thumbing their nose at the gods themselves, the powers of the universe, which meant courting disaster on earth. Because angry gods would punish those who had abandoned them, and punishment could be brutal. A drought, a plague, a horde of barbarians at the city gate. To preserve the Roman peace, everyone had to follow the traditional order. Otherwise, they threatened the common good. And snubbing the Roman gods could be the first sign of sedition. Religion remained a source of anxiety for Roman emperors because it remained a litmus test of loyalty, the one test of sameness in a diverse population. So, when Rome got whiff of an insurrection, they focused their suspicion on the foreign religion. For instance, in the first century, the Romans sailed out to a far island off the coast of Wales and massacred the Druids there because they disapproved of Druid rites. 
Also in the first century, they waged total war on Judaism, destroying the temple and the Jewish community in Jerusalem because Jews were threatening independence. And Christians, too, ended up on the wrong side of Rome from time to time. Christians insisted that their god did not fit into the Roman pantheon and, in fact, was greater than the Roman gods. And Christians had a further strike against them. Their religion was brand new. All those foreign cults, like that of Greece, at least had the weight of tradition behind them in their own lands. But Rome had zero patience for something brand new. If a religion had not been handed down from the ancients, it could hold nothing of truth. So now and then, especially in tense times, local people got angry at their Christian neighbors. They accused the Christians of being atheist. It sounds terribly odd, doesn't it, to think of Christians as atheists? That's because the Roman religion had everything to do with how you act, how you offer the public sacrifices. But Christians avoided the public ceremonies and worshipped in private in their own homes, so they remained targets of suspicion. They were shirking their religious duties. From the point of view of the Romans— not being good citizens, and definitely not good neighbors. This is just a tiny peek into Roman religion, but it should be enough to make one point clear. Even in a multicultural place like the Roman Empire, there was still one way in which everyone was expected to be the same. The Roman religion, like the hierarchical society it supported, was authoritarian in this way. But then in the 300s, the Roman order changed, and it changed fast. The emperor, Constantine, converted to Christianity, and by the end of the 300s, Christianity had become the official religion of the empire. And suddenly the tables were turned. Christianity inherited all the apparatus of power that had belonged to Rome, and it inherited as well the traditional ideas about what made for a strong and prosperous society, and number one on that list was sharing the same religion. So the new Christian emperors, starting with Constantine, followed the logic of sameness. They tried to force everyone to become Christian. Many people think that Christianity, once it came to power, was intolerant because it was inherently rigid, But this is only partly true. Christians did consider their God and their faith to be superior to the Roman gods, and Christians were arrogant for thinking themselves more righteous than others. Some of them even demonized their non-Christian neighbors. But behind it all lay this old idea embedded in the Roman consciousness that for society to be politically strong— Everyone has to be the same in at least one way. And for Romans, that one way was public religion. So, once Christianity came to power, it perpetuated that ancient pattern. The logic of sameness is obedience. The logic of sameness is intolerance. The logic of sameness is violence and suppression. And the logic of sameness continued right on down through the European history that followed the fall of the Roman Empire in the 4th century. It continued through a thousand years of feudalism, where children obeyed parents and wives obeyed husbands, 
and villagers obeyed bishops and everyone obeyed God, or at least were supposed to, and where a small class of owners got to decide the fates of others just because they had inherited the land, and where the Christian townspeople and their local governments carried out pogroms against Jews on the basis of religion, where Europeans went on bloody crusades against Muslims on the basis of religion, and where Christians persecuted even other Christians at home for not following the state religion. I know firsthand about this one because my Mennonite ancestors in Switzerland were harassed for 300 years for refusing to conform. Differences of religion remained the flashpoint of authoritarianism in Europe. So if we wonder why a third of white people in Western countries hold authoritarian tendencies, we have a long habit of it. For most of the past 2,000 years, people in Western countries have tried to find solidarity on the basis of sameness. And the logic of sameness continues today. It undergirds all ideas of otherness. There can be no other unless everyone in the first place is supposed to be alike. The United States is founded on an ugly logic of sameness, the idea that black and native people and people of color are inferior, and many white people, about a third of us, are still uncomfortable with differences. Passing laws to suppress differences is dangerous. When a logic of sameness is on the rise, all who are other are put in danger. Women and girls are not safe. People of color are not safe. Gay people are not safe. Trans people are not safe. Disabled people are not safe. Jews are not safe. Muslims are not safe. Immigrants are not safe. It is up to the two-thirds of white people who value diversity to use the power we have to help create safety. We can speak up against authoritarianism, We can organize for voting rights. We can work to interrupt old habits of hierarchy and obedience and coercion. We can work on behalf of immigrants. We can support the rights of nature to upend ancient ideas of human superiority. Every act toward diversity helps to challenge that old reflex toward sameness. There is something here for each of us to do. Nature is not in the business of carbon copies. Nature, to flourish, seeks boundless diversity. Humans are not separate from the natural world, and we should not expect to follow different rules and flourish. Just as in the rest of nature, human societies thrive not by suppressing differences, but by welcoming them. Wishing you the imagination that can see a world full of differences a heart that knows they make people strong, and the courage to help create safety in your community. You've been listening to Nature Spirit, a podcast with Priscilla Stuckey. For a transcript of this episode, or if you'd like to read further on the topic, go to my website, priscillastuckey.com and click on the Nature Spirit link. Or check out my books, Kissed by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature, and 
Tamed by a Bear, Coming Home to Nature Spirit Self, both published by Counterpoint Press. Until next time, be well and be blessed. <laughs>